Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. My guest today is Fareed Zakaria, and of course you know who he is. He's out with a new book, In Defense of a Liberal Education, in which he defends the very idea of a liberal education and the liberal arts. I should say it was a real treat to speak with him. I was the kind of kid who had a subscription to Time Magazine in middle school and devoured foreign affairs articles later on. So Fareed has pretty much always been a part of my intellectual life. So I was so grateful to learn more about his own intellectual development. We kick off with a discussion about his new book, and I think he does a decent job of allaying my fears about the impending costs of my kids' education. We then trace his own intellectual development from the influence of his parents growing up in a middle-class family in India to studying under some giants at Yale and Harvard to becoming the editor of Foreign Affairs magazine at an exceedingly young age. This is a great episode, and I also think it's a really good distillation of what I'm trying to do with this podcast, which is to collect these kinds of stories about the ideas, events, and influences that shape the worldview of people who, one way or another, shape how we think about the world. And if you like this episode, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes and download the app for free. You can hear people like George Mistral, Luis Arbour, Stephen Walt, Jessica Matthews, Jeff Sachs, Nick Kristoff, the journalist Robin Wright, and I think we're up to about 60 people at this point, discuss their lives and career. So go check it out on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And here it is, my conversation with Fareed Zakaria. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I think we're living in anxious times. Many of the sort of um, things that people took for granted seem up in the air, uh, and I think that's a product of uh, an increasing and accelerating pace of globalization, an accelerating pace of uh, technological change. Uh, And because of that, I think there is uh, a great deal of anxiety about the idea of an open-ended exploration uh, of the kind that a liberal education uh, celebrates. Uh, People are instead thinking practically about you know what kind of training they should uh, have in this in this world uh, that will get them a, a job, and these concerns are understandable. The anxiety is understandable, but what I wanted to do was try to remind people of the inher- the inherent value of this kind of open-ended exploration of knowledge that uh, a liberal education has always been about, uh, and to give them some. Uh, some argument uh, and, and perhaps some comfort in the idea that this does train you both for a good career but also for a good life. I mean, how much of this is um, a, a class issue? Or you can think of like almost an immigrant experience. Like my 
my grandparents were immigrants. My parents all went into the sciences, you know, became doctors. And I had that comfortable <laughs> life that allowed me to be like a comparative religion major. You know, I think that there is an element to it, but uh, but let's remember that uh, during the 50s and 60s, when you had the, really the greatest expansion of American education, uh, higher education that's taking place because of the GI Bill, um, at that point, majors like English and history were incredibly popular. Um, you know, your parents may have been doctors, but it's quite possible that along the way they took a lot of courses in that were not in the sciences because the colleges they went to required that. That the idea of a of a broader based uh, knowledge, which you then build on and specialize from, was was very much something uh, people celebrated. I think that. It now, like so much of America, now things have become more uh, unequal and more, you know, there's, there is more of, a, of almost a, uh, a streaming taking place where people, who, you know, who are comfortable uh, are able to do things that they think of as luxuries and people who are not uh, in that, quite in that situation are more desperate and uh, are searching for the most practical alternative. But I don't think it has to be that way because as I've pointed point out in the book, the lifetime earnings of liberal arts graduates are actually quite quite uh, good. The the bigger challenge, I think, which relates to this this um, you know, this new phenomenon, the, the reason I think it's not just uh, always been true is that the cost of education has become so expensive uh, that that has added a much greater, uh, it, it, I think it's more that than the, uh, than, you know, inherently that upper class people always took uh, liberal arts. It said now when you look, when you're confronted with a bill of $50,000 a year, you say to yourself, I, I, you know, family says to itself, if we're going to make this investment, we better be sure we're going to get a return. And even there, I would argue, the mistake is to think of it as, you know, what would be the, the best short-term training for the first job out of uh, college when you're 22. Uh, that, that would, you know, that's not the only way to think about this. The, the way to think about it might be, a better way to think about it might be, uh, what, is the, what is the way to equip myself for a lifetime of skills that could give me, get me 10 jobs over the next 40 years. You know, on th this question of just skyrocketing costs of a liberal arts education or, or of, of university in general, something that, you know, gives me great anxiety. You know, I have, I have a two-year-old at home and, and another one on the way, and I just have no idea how, how, how this, is, this works. Um, you know, working probably upwards of like, you know, $75,000 a year for, for, you know, a good liberal arts education. Are there, you know, specific public policy remedies to this issue of, of just skyrocketing costs? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I, I think the good news is that by the time your kids go to college, I believe something will have changed. Because I think for the first time we are uh, experiencing a real technological revolution that could uh, uh, produce enormous productivity uh, benefits and efficiencies in the, uh, in the education field, particularly in higher ed. You know, education has basically been unchanged uh, since, you know, probably since the time of the ancient Greeks. I mean, the way that Plato taught Aristotle is not so different from a college seminar. The guy stands in, the teacher stands up, talks, the students listen, small group of, you know, students is regarded as the optimal number. But what's the, the, the online education in MOOCs is dramatically changing this. It's, it's, it's making... Uh, it's having two effects. One, of course, is widening access, but it's also making it possible for people to get access to the best education at very, very low cost. 
um, you don't get the full, complete uh, uh, package of what uh, what we think of as a college education. You don't you you wouldn't get the classrooms and you wouldn't get the extracurriculars and things. But you're getting enough of it that I believe it will, uh, as they say in economics, they will it will puncture the price umbrella. That is the ability for a mid-tier college to uh, charge fifty thousand dollars for uh, you know for an ed- education when somebody you know your kids could take. 32 courses from MIT, Harvard, Stanford, uh, Princeton online for, you know, at most a few thousand dollars. That, that, the ability of that mid, mid-size college, mid-tier college to charge those tuition is going to collapse. So I think what you're going to see is a dramatic reduction in the cost of, uh, of uh, education. I think there will be specialization. There will be some colleges that are good at some things and some that are uh, good at others. Uh, there'll be, I, I think there'll be changes we can't even imagine. You could, you, you, you know, Vasa and Bard, for example, are half an hour apart from each other. They're both classic liberal arts colleges that do pretty much, you know, pro, I, I'm guessing now they, they have subjects that are very similar. Well, why wouldn't you do something where you'd say, well, Bard will do a bunch of things very well. Vasa will do a bunch of things very well, and the students can, you know, can can, can take classes in each cross register. Um, that's just one example of the many, many ways in which you, I think you're likely to get efficiencies. So I think the good news is that you are going to see a dramatic reduction in cost, probably not in the next five years, but certainly in the next 15. Uh, well, I, I should, uh, hope you're right. Thank you. It seems like all the public policy remedies at this point are helping parents like pay for the college, not on the Precisely. cost of sides, like the 529 exactly. plans, you know, the, the, exactly. the um, exactly. but not on the other side. There, I don't see like the and cost actually, reductions though, those, happening. You know, you don't have to be a libertarian to, to recognize that when the federal government provides, you know, lots of, of uh, uh, ends up paying for lots of, uh, of, of, of some product, it it has the inevitable effect of producing price inflation, right? I mean, if the consumer is not actually paying for this stuff, and the federal government is paying it through some complicated loan mechanism, uh, there's no there's no real need for anyone to be highly efficient. Um, it happens in healthcare. It happens in education. Those are the two areas where it happens. Um, so I know your book. Uh, you know, in your book, you. Uh uh, discuss your own intellectual roots, your own path in, in your uh, own liberal education. So I thought it would be a good exercise to go through that with you um, and interesting to listeners as well. So uh, can you, I guess, talk about the circumstances in which you were born? I suppose you were, you were born uh, in India, probably at like the tail end of the Nehru uh, administration, the Nehru era. Um, what, what were your, your parents up to? What was your kind of situation? Uh, well, you have it exactly right. I think I think I'm right. Nehru was uh, died in six, 1964, which was my birth year. Um, so I was born in in India. Um, you know, really just a generation removed from um, independence. Not even a generation removed. So, for my parents, the absolutely um, pivotal event in their lives was that India became an independent country, broke free from the British Empire. Were they activists um, I, in that in that regard? Were, were my father was very much so. My father was a what, what was called in India a freedom fighter, which meant that he had opposed British rule. He had uh, he had fought, he had, you know, uh, protested. I, I think he had uh, briefly even gone to jail. But he was in the younger cohort. He was not part of that that initial generation so uh, and then he ended up in uh, in college and he got a scholarship to go to uh, London 
um, and uh, finish up his studies. He got a, he was a very uh, very determined, energetic guy. So he went. He got a scholarship to London, and in that four years, I think he got a law degree, a PhD, and he worked at the what, the London Observer as a war correspondent, um, and and then came back and having saved enough money to to start up a law practice. Um, so he was very much part of that world of um, of Indian uh, national nationalistic nationalistic politics uh, that was all about uh, independence. But for him, the particular and and crucial cause of his life was that India re- remain a secular democracy. Because as a very young man, he was provo- he was given two visions. One was Nehru's, which was of India as a secular democracy that encompassed all of the religions, and the other was Jinnah. Uh, which was uh, a religious national, you know, Pakistan based on religious nationalism. He was he was an in, in, uh, Muslim, and he very decidedly chose Nehru's vision and thought that uh, not only was Jinnah Jinnah's vision bad for you know bad for Muslims, it was bad for India, it was bad. You know, he he, he regards the greatest tragedy of his life that Jinnah won achieved partition and that Pakistan was created. I mean, it's not politically very correct to say that, but he regarded that, that as one of the great tragedies. He, he issued in, 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 pol- political Islam. Did he have any um, personal beliefs that he held dear? Did he practice uh, at all? Was he, you know, he all observant? No, he was not very religious. No, no, he was not. He was, I'd say he was uh, culturally a Muslim. He was an Islamic scholar because he was fascinated by the issues but um, he, you know, he did, he didn't go to Friday prayers, um, let and alone pray it, what, five what, times a day. Was your mom uh, similarly politically active? She sort of agreed with him. Um, you know, he, with, with he, she was she came out of the same worldview, roughly speaking, um, but much less politically active. She was a she became a journalist. She started out as a social worker. And ended up becoming a journalist. She was a very good editor. She was very good with with, uh, with uh, text, with graphics, with things. She was very good at putting things together. Is yeah, I should say, because she she uh, still uh, she just resigned at seventy eight uh, oh, wow. from her last journalistic job. Um, but uh, she, you know, she she certainly um, you know agreed with his with his worldview and and shared it. Um, I'd say that. The one thing that they were different on is he was, uh, you know, he came out of the world of left-wing politics, partly because if you were anti-anti-imperialist, that was the world you were you were in, and all his compatriots were British Labour Party politicians and people like that. So he tended to have a sort of left-wing view on economics, but also a left-wing view of a left-wing suspicion of American power. My mother had none of that. My mother was very pro-American and always, and every time she'd go to America, she would be reinforced in that very positive view of uh, of America. Even, as I say in the book, even when she went in the late 70s and early 80s, when, you know, everyone thought uh, America was uh, in decline and uh, cities in America were dangerous and kids in America were drug, drug-addled, rebellious uh, uh, brats who were who were... Uh, you know, kind of uh, destroying the culture, the fabric of the culture. My mother thought not, didn't agree with any of that. She was very, she had a very sunny pro-American view. I, I guess it's probably, or is it fair to say that probably while you're growing up, more Americans, le- or more Indians, leaned towards your your father's point of view? I mean, on the international stage, you know, they were nominally, you know, a leader of the non-aligned movement, but they were, you know, pretty much pro-Soviet in their disposition. 
uh, and and sort of suspicious of of America, at least in, in you know international relations at the time. Um, I mean, were your like dinner table conversations exceedingly heated? So it's a very interesting question uh, that you ask. There's no question that the official position of the Indian government was exactly as you describe that elected politicians who were you know. I mean, this is this is you know. So these are not dictators imposing their views on others. The, the politicians were elected, doing a lot of uh, uh, with with a lot of anti-American nationalistic rhetoric. It was in a sense a kind of um, carryover from the British, from the anti-British rhetoric. The Americans were the new Western superpower, but at the same time, people were absolutely fascinated by America. Absolutely, I would say, in awe of America's. Um, wealth, productivity, but also it's uh, it's kind of uh, the, the degree to which it pushed the envelope on the expansion of individual autonomy, the expansion of liberty. Uh, you know, if I think of the 1960s, the civil rights movement, the women's lib movement, all that stuff was regarded, well, people were absolutely fascinated by. Nobody had any interest in the Soviet Union. I remember that vividly. The Soviets used to try and put on cultural events in the, in the, at the embassy. Nobody would go. Whereas in the, the American embassy and the American, there was something called the uh, the, in the the information service. Uh, what was it called? The uh, USIS, U.S. Information Service, would would do these things, and they would be packed. You know, whether it was they were doing stuff on jazz or they were doing stuff on movies. Um, so, so there, there was a very odd, um, pa- there was a paradox, which is that people politically were suspicious of America, but uh, culturally um, and just, you know, atmospheric, just in terms of their gut, they were completely fascinated by it. And what's so, changed in my lifetime is that that political suspicion has largely evaporated. India is now one of the most pro-American countries in the world, no matter how you ask the question. Um, so, so personally speaking, I mean, when was the first moment where you decided that America is a place that you wanted to live or at least go pursue an education? For me, I think that I was initially, I initially grew up thinking that I would probably um, end up going to England for my uh, higher education, partly because my father had done that. You know, there was a not, there was a there was a feeling that if you were uh, if you were bright and had had the uh, had the ambition that you should leave India for higher education because Indian colleges were not really that that good. Uh, well, certainly Western ones were better. Uh, and in my uh, in the sixties, people in my school, the best students would get scholarships to Oxford and Cambridge. What happens then is, and by the seventies, Britain is broke. Uh, the British economy is doing terribly, and all that scholarship money dries up. Meanwhile, um, the American colleges are now beginning to offer foreign student scholarships, which is something they didn't uh, they didn't used to do in the 1960s, or not very much. And so, part of it is, you know, culture follows power. Your 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 attraction to these things is somewhat related to the uh, the, the the magnetic power of American colleges was related to their uh, their ability to offer these kinds of scholarships, but uh, America itself became a much more attractive place as in, as England dwindled in the imagination of Indians. Uh, the further you got from the British Raj, and the more you saw Britain, you know, decline. Uh, for me, the most kind of you know the the most significant thing was I started to hear back from uh, friends of mine who would have been who spent some time in America, a semester here, an exchange student there, and they all described it in 
dazzling terms, in glowing terms. And this was really about you know, the distinctive American kind of education, the liberal education, which I describe in the book. Because remember, if you go to Oxford, you still read one subject. If you go to Cambridge, you read three subjects, often, often related. Uh, whereas in America, you know, we'd have these people come back and they say, I did physics and poetry. I took a class in film studies. And the idea that you could explore all these different uh, fields of knowledge was something that was uh, completely novel uh, for for somebody in, in India, and it and, and it sounded exciting partly because everybody who did it was 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 enthusiastic about it, was excited by it. There was a there was a sense in which college was fun for people who came back from from America, which is a completely novel you know was a novel idea for me in India. The I, college was not meant to be fun. I mean, you might make friends and have fun, but the actual academic experience was a chore. Uh, it was a kind of, you know, the, the, this sort of, uh, the, this, the process of road memorization, which punctuated by huge, uh, you know, significant uh, tests, which you had to cram for the month before, and then you'd promptly forget everything the day after. <laughs> that was the experience of Indian higher education. Um, so you ended up going to Harvard, is that right? Yeah. How did you, how did you choose that? Okay, so it was following your brother's oh, footsteps sort of thing. Yeah, I was trying to follow my brother's footsteps. I applied to, to I, I applied everywhere because I needed a scholarship, and so I, I sent in a lot of applications. Um, my, I didn't get into Harvard, so that, that sorted itself out. Uh, and I was lucky enough uh, to get into Yale and Princeton and a bunch of other places, but, but I was eventually deciding between those two. And where did you and, end up going to school? I ended up going to Yale because I didn't have any real way, way of figuring out where I should go. Remember, but this is the early 80s. There was no internet. There was no, I mean, India didn't have color TV at that point. And the way you discard, you know, somebody had told us that you need to take uh, the SATs. And so we said, uh, okay, my brother and I, uh, how do you study for them? And somebody said, well, you can't study for these, these tests. They're aptitude tests. So we said, okay. We just walked into the American consulate one day where they were administering the the SATs, and we took the test. Do you remember um, what you scored? Yeah, I did well. I mean, did well well enough to get into all these places, but so I good. can't remember the the exact score. It was. Uh, I don't want to say it because somebody will, you know, find <laughs> it. it, was, it I, I remember my brother got an uh, eight hundred on math, and I think I got. Uh, like a 750, and I was really upset about it. At the, at the um, so, so you, you um, get to I, Yale. But, but I remember as, yeah. as I was trying to decide between Yale and Princeton, and I had no way of knowing. I knew nothing about these colleges from 8,000 miles away, so I tossed a coin. Uh, so the, you tossed heads. Heads, heads was Yale. What, what did you start studying there? So I got there thinking to myself, okay, I'll probably do some version of physics and computer science. That was, those were the things that I thought I, I, liked, I liked physics very much and was, was good at it. I, I, I wasn't as strong in math, but I could, you know, could handle it. Uh, and I had done some computer programming uh, when I was, at, when I was at, uh, in India. Um, and so I started out signing up for those kind of courses. And I took one course in history, the history of the Cold War, taught by H. Bradford Westerfield. And it was just mesmerizing. It was dazzling. And I realized, you know, I love this stuff. And I had always loved it. I had, I used to voraciously read the newspapers in India. When I remember um, 
Kissinger's memoirs were excerpted in the Times of India, and I read them very carefully. Uh, I love that stuff, but I never thought, you know, you can do it as a major. Or so. I don't think you could really follow your passion that way and then just, you know, then make, make something of it. So I had assumed, well, you know, I read the newspapers on the side, but I've got a major in something serious. Uh, and I decided at the, in my second semester that I would essentially switch and I would take that one course that I took and make it the focus of my of my education. So I decided to be a history major. I still took a bunch of science courses, but I became a history major. How did your family feel about, your parents feel about that decision? You know, my parents were very good about not pushing, um, the, you know, this issue on me. They, they did want us to do science and engineering. There's no question about that. I remember that. I remember particularly in the case of my brother. Um, they thought it was a more... Uh, practical, useful um, uh, kind of uh, skill to have. Look, in India in the 70s, you know, the question that used to be asked in my in my high school was, uh, for if you weren't rich, and we were not, we were middle class, but we were not rich, uh, you want to be a doctor or a lawyer? A lawyer? Those, those are the, you know, the idea was there's two streams. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, not a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, a doctor and engineer. You know, those are the two streams uh, because those are the two ways Sure-footed ways, the sure ways you could make money. I mean, it's like the the same um, thing. It's like the Jewish immigrant experience. You exactly, know, it's, exactly, exactly. And, and in yeah. a, a, a poorer country, so the lawyers were not, you know, that was not a particularly uh, attractive path. So it was, you know, in, in in America that would you would have added that, um, and the. You know, so my parents had that feeling. But look, my dad had been was a politician, a lawyer turned politician. My mom was a journalist, so. You know, they they knew that from their own life subconsciously, I suppose, that, you know, people can follow many different paths. And most importantly, they didn't um, they didn't push anything on us. They were very good about just encouraging our, uh, us to, you know, be independent, do, do what you want. Uh, something will work out. That, that, uh, that I remember more than anything else. But I do remember my brother decided... Um, that he was uh, not going to continue with uh, with math and and physics. Uh, my godfather, my mother got my godfather to write a note to him saying, you know, are you sure you're making the right decision? <laughs> so there was there was some pressure, but it was very very modest. So so you're leaving uh, Yale with a degree in history. What's your what's your plan? I mean, do you have a plan? <laughs> I'll tell you what my plan was. I decided sophomore year that I wanted to stay in America, that I, I fell in love with the country. And so my plan was that I was going to stay in America. And that meant I needed to be able to stay on a student visa. And the easiest way to stay on a student visa was to get a, to apply to a PhD program, get a scholarship there, because that would give me a visa that, that I could, you know, I could be in the United States for, for a while. Probably forever and, if you're taking a PhD. <laughs> exactly, and I I, I tested that. There's always, there's always more research to um, do, right? <laughs> exactly, and and you know that was a lot. That had a lot to do with it. I was thinking I'd do law, as there many people who do, you know, get the history degrees. And I I actually took the LSAT. I, I registered for the LSATs, and either I can't quite remember now. Either the morning of the LSATs, I said to myself, "Why am I doing this? I don't want to be a lawyer." Or I actually went to the to the LSAT place and started taking the test, and I walked out. But I, I somehow decided very, you know, that I just wasn't, I didn't want to be a lawyer. Why was I taking this test? I feel like every and, successful uh, journalist has had that conversation with themselves sometime <laughs> in their mid-20s. 
I think that's exactly right. And I know then, I so, have. I, so I so I got the PhD. Uh, so I applied, you know, for the PhD, literally, so that I could get a visa and mm-hmm. so that I could, you know, turn over my my undergraduate visa into a graduate student. Where Where was your PhD? I got it at Harvard. So in in uh, history or in political science? In 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 political science. So who are in who international are your, relations? So like, who are your guys there? Like, what what were you studying? I was. I was very lucky. I ended up um, studying with Stanley Hoffman, Samuel Huntington, and Robert Cohen, who oh, yeah. are the Robert Cohen, the great, the, great one. Yeah, of course. He he did the uh, after hegemony, right? He was the. Yeah, oh the, my goodness, you're yeah. you're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the and, liberal, and neoliberal. Yeah, I mean, but that's exactly. so different from from um, Huntington. He comes at it totally differently. And and Hoffman, who was and a Hoffman. kind of traditional, uh, I used to I used to joke that my advisors agree only on the existence of my dissertation. Right. Wait, is really Hoffman? Very, very he was like the was he like the constructivist? Is that right? No, Hoffman came oh, out of the know. old, you know, like nineteen fifties oh, right. Raymond Aron yeah. kind of school of yeah. essayistic international relations. Very, you know, so whereas whereas um, Cohen right. was very influenced by economics, and yep. as you say, in this kind of neoliberal, mm-hmm. you know, the, the sort of the early stages of things like rational choice and and the game yeah. theory. That's um, right. His Hunting, his, his big thing was, was yeah. a hardcore <laughs> power politics. Guy. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Jervis was his his whole thing, or not Jervis? Pardon me. Uh, Cohen was was uh, the the game theory. You know, your ability to like you know make positive sum outcomes out of the exactly. game theory. I'm trying to I'm trying exactly. to remember back to grad did you, school. Did you did you do the stuff? You know uh, you I I well. got a security studies uh, degree at Georgetown um, oh, yeah. several years ago, but I'm so I'm, it's kind of you know it's it's in there somewhere. Um, so at some point I did read after hegemony. Um, yeah, but you know Hoffman or not Hoffman? A bit but, of a slog between us. Yeah, I mean Huntington. I mean there was this this period, um, probably what in like you know maybe for the first five years after the September 11th attack, where pretty much every foreign affairs book that was published, you know, had to have a chapter that refuted st- um, the clash of civilizations <laughs> thesis. That's right? right, and I and I published it. I yeah, right. My, my, the first article I brought for, when I became managing editor of Foreign Affairs was uh, was was uh, Huntington's Clash of Civilizations. Um, so so uh, what what was your PhD thesis on? My PhD thesis, like a good immigrant, I decided I was going to do something very American. I uh, my PhD thesis was on American foreign policy between the Civil War and World War One, roughly speaking. It's basically about. Uh, it, my undergraduate advisor had been Paul Kennedy, the guy who wrote The Rise yeah. and Fall of the Great Powers, uh, the great uh, British historian. And he, uh, uh, you know, he posits in that book that every country that becomes rich uh, it, it very quickly becomes militarily powerful, politically active, diplomatically influential. And so I said, okay, well, what explains the greatest um, exception in modern history, which is that by 1880, the United States was the richest country in the world, and yet it had the, I'm making this up now, the 15th largest uh, navy, the 25th largest army, it had barely a diplomatic presence anywhere in the world, and so why was that? And so I essentially wrote my thesis trying to, trying to understand what people at the time, what, what American statesmen at the time were thinking. And, and uh, what did you find out? What I found was that it was actually very interesting that there were that that the, the sharpest American statesmen at the time were very aware of American power. So uh, William Henry Seward, who was Lincoln's Secretary of State, um, and then uh, Johnson's, 
was very aware that the United States was becoming very powerful, and he wanted a massive expansion. Uh, he wanted to annex Mexico. He, you know, all he was able to do was Alaska. Um, he imagined that the capital would move from Washington actually to Mexico because he thought that there would then be a great southern expansion, um, and that that Mexico would be at the sort of uh, the center of the of the American uh, system. But what the all these guys confronted was the reality of a very powerful nation, but a very weak state. So America was unique, I mean, com- com- contrasted to Germany, which was also rising at the time, whether the government, the, the federal government, could, in, could not raise any money. The taxes were, income taxes were unconstitutional, remember. Um, and they couldn't even raise troops because you still had essentially a kind of medieval system where the, the, where the national government had to beg, borrow, and steal from states to, you know, to get state militias. Uh, and then kind of uh, corral them into uh, in, into a national government, and the idea of building you know large, large uh, navies and things like that was completely you know, something people were shocked into doing. Some during the Civil War, and there was a great reaction after the Civil War to to demobilize. So the the the, the inherent anti-statist tradition of of the United States made it unique among the, of the great powers of the period. Um, the, 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 it wasn't until you really got to uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, that, you, that that mentality started to change, and it really only changed in World War I. So, you know, you're, you're in Harvard, you're writing this thesis. How is it that you became sort of this, this known sort of, you know, pundit entity? Where did, where did that come from? And, and, like, how did you get that job at, you know, foreign affairs at, at such an early age? Gosh, so I I I started writing uh, and 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 kind of uh, commenting on uh, stuff pretty early. I started writing when I was at Yale um, for obviously student publications. I then tried to publish stuff in my senior year at Yale. I think I had the first thing I ever published was in the American Scholar, which was the Journal of Phi Beta Kappa which was edited by a wonderful editor named Joseph Epstein, and a wonderful essayist who's still alive and still, still writes. Um, and I, when I got to graduate school, I continued to, to do that. I worked for the New Republic. I worked for Harper's. I started writing stuff for the New Republic, um, writing book reviews, long book reviews about American foreign policy. Um, which which got me, I think, noticed. Um, then I wrote, started writing some stuff for the op-ed page of the Times, which is obviously a great way to get no, to get uh, to get your name out. So all along, um, though, it's probably fair to say that your influence, you, you are interested in influencing public policy rather than just doing kind of academic research for its own sake. Exactly, right? exactly. Though you know, it's interesting you say that. If you would have followed my, if you would have watched me, my actions, you, that that's exactly what you would have noticed. I don't think I, I, I would never have articulated it as such. I didn't, I didn't know why I was doing this stuff because I would find something really interesting and I'd feel like mm-hmm. nobody's saying this and I'd write an article and I'd send it to the, you know, the Times and, you know, they, it, it, obviously many got rejected, but some would get accepted. And, uh, and so I was kind of, it was, it was a product of interest and passion more than some kind of career plan. I think my career plan at that time was to be an academic. I got the so, foreign affairs job totally through serendip- a kind of serendipitous path, which was um, 
I got to know Walter Isaacson. Uh, Walter Isaacson, uh, when I was at a graduate student at Harvard, Walter was writing his Kissinger biography. Somebody told him, you should send this, there's this bright graduate student at Harvard, send him your chapters on Kissinger's um, theories of balance of power. He'll make sure that, you know, if you get him to read them, he'll make sure you don't make any, any kind of mistakes. So he sent them to me, um, and I, you know, I said, I'm sure, as a graduate student, I'd be happy to read this and comment on it. I read them. I, 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 as I recall, he, in fact, had gotten it exactly right. There was, there was, there was no reason for it. He didn't need, need to have sent it to me, but I was delighted to, to read it nonetheless. Uh, but because of that, I got to know him. And one day he said to me, there's this job, the, editor, uh, the managing editorship of Foreign Affairs. You're very young for it, but you should apply. I think you, I think you have a good chance of, get, of getting it. How, how old and are I you? Remember, I was 28. I remember saying to him, I have no interest in it. And he said, why? I said, because uh, Sam Huntington just told me that uh, I should apply for an assistant professorship at Harvard, and he thinks I'll get that job. And, and this is a wonderful moment where he says to me, you realize I'm talking about the managing editorship of foreign affairs. And I said, you realize I'm talking about an assistant professorship at Harvard. In other words, we both had our preference ordering so clearly uh, demarcated in our minds that we couldn't understand why the other didn't see that, that uh, you know, I, I was, the way I was looking at it, at the end of graduate school, you get socialized. And the best thing you could do is to be an assistant professor. And, you know, if you're at Harvard, you get socialized to believe the best thing you could do in the world is to be an assistant professor at Harvard. And he, meanwhile, is, a, is sort of, you know, looking at it from a broader metric of, of stepping outside of the academic world. I went back to home that evening and I thought, God, what am I thinking? I've always liked journalism, and this is a great, you know, way to get into it, where it's still quite serious and somewhat quasi-academic. Um, I looked, thought about every summer job I had had. I'd always gone worked in, you know, in a newspaper or magazine. I had been, I, I founded a newspaper when I was in high school, and so suddenly I realized, you know, if you, if I think back about what I had, was doing rather than what I thought my career ambitions were, the, the stuff I'd always done was journalism. So I called him up the next day and said, yeah, to, you know, toss my hat in the ring. But then I realized, if, the, if you don't mind the long story, no, um, then I realized that I was 28 years old and the, everybody else being interviewed for that job was like 55 um, and was you know the deputy editor of the New York Times Magazine and things like that. Um, and so I met with the editor-in-chief, uh, Jim Hogue. We hit it off very well because he liked my writing and he liked the idea that I was more out of the world of the academy and he came more out of the world of journalism. But I could tell that he was wondering, this, kid, this guy's a 28-year-old graduate student. How, how do I know that he could edit? So I said, you know, let me, let me try to do something radical. I said, let me, tell you, uh, let me suggest something, Mr. Hogue. The magazine as it exists now is very boring. It's very dull. Um, it's a lot of dutiful uh, essays by secretaries of state and foreign ministers and people like that. There's a lot of stuff that shouldn't be published, and everything is too long. Let me edit the magazine for you. He said, what do you mean? I said, let me take the last issue, which he had not been involved in because he, he was also new uh, to the job. I said, let me take the last issue, and let me show you what I would do. I'll kill the articles that I would have killed, and I'll propose a substitute, and I will take the articles that I leave in, and I'll re-edit them. And so he said, okay. And so I 
for the next three weeks, I killed myself. I basically <laughs> took the entire magazine. I, I literally, you know, killed five articles and I wrote one page memos as to who I would have, you know, instead. And then I took the remaining six articles and I rewrote them start to finish. And I remember in each case, they were about six to 9,000 words and I got them all from four to four to six. I cut them by about 30%. But I rewrote them. I didn't just cut them. And I sent him a, you know, printed version of my foreign affairs. And he gets it in the morning and he calls me in the afternoon and says, okay, you have the job. Amazing. So, so I mean, you, you get this job at such a young age. I mean, how do you avoid, I guess, like the hubris that comes along with being so successful at such an early age? I mean, there is, you know, a lot of times you see successful people, you know, get in over their heads. Um, when they, when they, you know, finally get that, that big job, how, how was it that you were able to, or maybe you didn't, maybe you did succumb to hubris at, at time for being, you know, so young and also so successful. You know, I'm sure I, I, I I'm sure I, uh, did succumb. Um, and, and I'm sure I did let it, it did go to my head, but the one thing that, that did save me, uh, a little, a little bit, um, was that in a, in a way I was always, I was judging myself by a different metric, which was um, I kept thinking to myself that I'd sold out and gotten into, and I'd left academia, which was the more pure, serious path that I should have been on. And I remember thinking that you know I really have to I have to keep in mind that five years from now, say ten years from now, I'll, I'll probably go back to academia, and so this is a this is you know a kind of detour just because I so enjoyed it and seemed such a great. Uh, such an interesting life, but I've got to kind of make sure that I can I can go back. So I I um, published my dissertation, which which involved you know taking the dissertation and and turning it into a book, which was a lot of work. Um, I, I I was very attentive to that. So in, in the back of my mind, I you know I kind of kept discounting whatever whatever success I would have as being merely in journalism and that I really wanted to be in academia. Mm-hmm. It may have been just some kind of weird psychological device that I was using because I was thoroughly enjoying myself. I mean, I, I was having, I, I so enjoyed um, being at Foreign Affairs. It was one what of were the some of your, uh, What were some of the highlights? What, what, what articles, uh, you know, think still stand up to this day that you're really proud of, of having, you know, pushed for? So when I told um, Sam Huntington that I was going to leave Harvard, um, and go to foreign affairs, despite the fact that he had told me that uh, that I would get a job as an assistant professor at Harvard. He was very um, upset. In fact, all three of my dissertation advisors uh, re- counseled me not to take the foreign affairs job. Um, and he said so. But finally, when he said, "Okay, I, I understand you're going to do it," um, he, you know, and I said to him, "Okay, now one last thing." Uh, when I'm going, you remember that paper you gave me? He had he's given me a paper that he wanted me to that he had written an essay that he had written that he wanted comments on. Uh, you remember that that paper you had given me that, that you wanted comments on the clash of civilizations? I think it's fascinating. I'm not sure I agree with it, but I think it's absolutely fascinating and thought provoking. Can I publish that at, at Foreign Affairs? Um, and he said, Sure, I'd be happy to. So that was the first article I brought with me to Foreign Affairs and. And it actually helped me enormously because not only did we publish it, it was the first time Foreign Affairs had published something uh, as a lead article. So I put a lot of my credibility at stake with the editor-in-chief, with Jim Hogue. I said, this is going to be big. Let's put it in big red letters at the top. 
uh, and we did it, and of course it it was it exploded. It was the most successful article foreign affairs has published since uh, George Kennan's X article, um, and it gave, it bought me a lot of credibility with Jim Hogue. Um, but uh, that was probably the 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 you know the single high, and then we ran a debate about it. The other one was that I started to read a uh, an academic uh, who was I think at MIT uh, at the time an economist who I thought wrote very, very clearly and in a very interesting contrarian way. Uh, and I asked him to write for foreign affairs. And that was Paul Krugman. Now, Paul had written some things somewhere, uh, you know, in, in other uh, places, but very, very few. Um, I'm, I think that, I, 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 you know, again, one would have to go back and there's always the danger that you exaggerate, your, that one exaggerates one's own uh, uh, role here. But I think that foreign affairs was, if not the first big place, among the very first big places. He wrote, what I do remember is he wrote lots for me. He wrote a piece on, a big piece on competitiveness. He wrote a big piece on the Asian economic crisis. He wrote, I must have written five or seven pieces. Or, you know, each of these is five, seven, five, six thousand words. And that, that really got him, um, much more famous than he, than he was. And then, and of course, then came the Times column. But but there were many uh, other, you know, one of the great things about foreign affairs was you could almost get anyone to write for you once because it was so famous and so prestigious that, you know, we didn't pay much. We didn't, they virtually paid nothing. Uh, people might, it might not always be exactly the right audience uh, for what you were trying to do. But you could always, you know, somehow you could get people to write for you one time. Uh, the one person I couldn't do that with was V.S. Naipaul. Um, uh-huh. whom I, I admired greatly as a writer. And I had talked to him on the phone, and he said, you know, I just don't think I have anything to say um, right now. And uh, I don't really think that's going to change for a bit. So thank you so much for asking. Always one who got away, but thank you so much for speaking with me. Oh, you're very kind. This was, this was a lot of fun for me. Thank you so much oh, for thanks. doing it. All right. Well, thanks for listening. That was a lot of fun. Thank you to Fareed. Go buy his book. And if you're new to the Global Dispatches podcast, go to our website, globaldispatchespodcast.com and check out our archives. We've got lots of great conversations like this. See you next time. Bye.